there were moments. So I ran <clears throat> the race called the Spartathlon, which is kind of a, a recreation of what he did. And I used the same foods that he used. So I only ate uh, figs and olives and uh, dried meat and only drank water. I didn't use any sort of electrolyte replenishment. So that kind of put my body in that, you know, that same state that I'm sure he was in. You know, the difference is that I'm running in, you know, cushioned hoka shoes <laughs> you know there's uh there's it's mostly on the road but crossing some of the mountain passes there were elements and times where i thought this is this is pretty savage like this is really amazing you know looking up at the moon and thinking how did that that guy know some of the mountains you cross you're almost you know you're 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 on all fours i mean you're just scurrying up the side of a mountain um in the middle of the night and the wind's howling and you know it it must have been surreal to, to do what he did, but he must have been so determined to do it because, you know, he knowing that if, if he failed, that, you know, his people would probably be slaughtered. That, my friend, was Dean Carnazes. And this is the Inspiration Runners Podcast. Hey everyone, hope everyone's keeping safe during this crazy time. My name's Robbie Marsh and I'm your host, so welcome to the podcast. We have a special guest on the show this week to celebrate the podcast's second birthday. Someone who has influenced a generation of runners to challenge their own personal limits and beyond. Winner of the Badwater 135 mile race through Death Valley. Holder of the Great Western State 10 times finisher buckle. He's ran 350 miles non-stop where he invented the new sport of sleep running. Ran 50 marathons in 50 states in 50 days. Finishing with the New York Marathon with an amazing time of 3 hours and 30 seconds. The list goes on and on running countless marathons and ultra marathons. He hadn't ran in years, then on his 30th birthday whilst out drinking with his mates, he took a head stagger. Ran out of the bar and ran 30 miles into the night. The very next day, he resigned from his high-level corporate job and pursued a career in running. He's been on numerous chat shows, which included The Late Show with David Letterman, one of my old favourites, The Howard Stern Show, Late Night with Conan O'Brien, etc. He's also appeared on several of the top magazines, front covers such as Runner's World, Outside Magazines, etc. He's released top-selling books, with my favourite being Ultra Marathon Man, Confessions of an All-Night Runner. So if you haven't read that book, make sure you jump onto Amazon. But also to follow on with that, 50, 50 Secrets I Learned Running 50 Marathons in 50 Days, the book Run, and his latest, The Road to Sparta, Reliving the Ancient Battle, an epic run that inspired the world's greatest foot race. I don't want to delay you any further. This guest has obviously been a hero of mine over the last 10 years of running. So it's with great pleasure I give you Dean Karnazes. You're brilliant, actually. They, uh, there's not much of a time lag, which is, is very nice. Because a lot of these interviews I do, I see the mouth move, and then it's a split second before you actually get the, uh, the audio. I'm just looking at myself here on the screen. I'm thinking, Jesus, what a mess. Um <laughs> You don't even want to see me. You think you're a mess. <laughs> it's because of the lockdown. We just, us men have just let ourselves go. I think that uh, I haven't showered in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you win that battle over me. Um, <laughs> um, I started running in about 2011, Dean. And I ran my first marathon in Dublin. And I struggled through with an IT band issue. So I never ran for about two months after that. And somebody gave me your book, Confessions of an All-Night Runner. 
I finished it. I couldn't put the bloody book down. I finished it on Boxing. I'll never forget it. In 2011, Boxing Day morning. I woke up and I was looking out the window. My wife says, what are you doing? I says, I'm going to go for a run. <laughs> she goes, right, how far are you going? I goes, um, I'm going to run a marathon today. And <laughs> the look that she gave me, like I was only new to running. A marathon was a big thing. And I hadn't ran in two months. But I just wanted to test what I'd read in the book. It inspired me that much. And I went out the door with no food, no water. And I just went for an adventure. Um, picking up little bits and pieces on the way and I came back to my door like four hours and 57 minutes later in misbelief almost that I'd actually just gone because back then in my mind a marathon was a huge thing that I had to train 16 weeks for had to taper I had to do all that good stuff had to have all my gels my belt all that good stuff and here I was I just went out the door and just ran now it might have been slow but the feeling that I got from that like I'd never felt more alive than that moment when I came back to the door. It was just total misbelief. Like, but that was the sort of effect that book had on people. What? Why do you think people connected in that way to that book? Uh, I think that we all share that same sort of, I don't know, primordial instinct, if you will, to do something wild and adventurous and beyond uh, our comfort zone. And I think that I just basically articulated my story. And when other people read it, they thought, wow, uh, something powerful in me just got ignited. And I want I can do the same thing. I want to do this. And I want those same emotions and those same feelings. And uh, I think it just gave people permission to to go and do exactly what you did. And and it didn't disappoint. <laughs> I mean, as, as you stated, you got you know, you did it, you came back through that door and it really was a powerful and profound experience. And it was the same way for me. And so you and I are kind of kindred spirits in that regard in that um, we're drawn to these sort of things. I know other people that have read that book and said, wow, you guys are, you guys are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's a, there's the other group that are like you and me that say, I, I want this, I want more of this. Now, I have to say, when I started the book, I was thinking, this man's crazy. <laughs> it was when I come to the end of the book. <laughs> I thought, hmm, well, maybe he's got something here. Do you think the timing of the book was an important part of its success? Because it's a bit different now. You know, back then, it used to be that skinny elite runners run marathons and sort of superhumans ran ultra marathons. Whereas today, like Joe Next Door is doing back-to-backs this weekend. Jenny at the end of the street is going to do a 100-mile race. It's a sort of totally different world that we're in now. Um, do you think that, because it's all about um, what we're exposed to. So if you think of the Roger Bannister four-minute mile or that Elliot Kipchoge just broke the two hours, you know, it's unheard of back then. Do you think the book sort of had that type of essence around it, that the timing of that book was just right at the start of that movement? Yeah, I think, I think it had something to do with timing. Uh, I think it also had something to do with the, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, scripting your own life, like, you know, following your own path. Uh, you know, back when the book was written, it was it was uncommon for people to be doing like what you're doing, you know, to start a podcast or to, you know, to even think about having a, a legitimate career, you know, in the running world. You know, if you if you if you were a shoe salesman, you know, running shoe salesman, you lived in the back of your van. And that was kind of just the choice you made where nowadays the kind of the gig economy is more commonplace. But 
when the book came out, for someone to leave a you know a comfortable corporate job to become a quote unquote runner and, and not even really you know an elite runner, an ultra marathoner, not not an elite you know ten thousand meter runner or marathon runner. And I think that was that was kind of revolutionary to a lot of people. Like, wow, you know, I can actually live a life that I enjoy and do things that are uh, crazy and make a go of it. So I think it was that has something to do with it. And then I don't know, you know, I, I try to get my head around that question you asked is, was it, you know, is, is it just more commonplace now for people to go run, you know, a uh, hundred miles or, you know, back to back marathons? I don't know if it's more commonplace or if it's just that uh, now that you're in that same universe, <clears throat> all our friends and all our points of reference are doing crazy things. Because I mean, even, you know, when I talk to people about, uh, you know, you, you reference uh, the, the sub two hour marathon, you know, when I tell people, some people, lay people, wow, you know, this guy just broke two hours at the marathon. And, you know, the common response I get is, God, that's amazing. How far is a marathon? <laughs> so I, I don't know if it's just because we're, you know, we're part of that, that crew now, you know, that posse, or if, uh, if it's actually become more uncommonplace. But I'm still amazed at how many people just, you know, like traditional, uh, you know, media personalities that have me on their show have no idea what an ultra marathon is and have no idea that a human can run 100 miles nonstop. Yeah, I think you're actually right there because, like, even through the podcast, and it doesn't matter whether I'm podcasting, you know, friends that race against me in our local races or people in Chamonix or these amazing races like the Great Western State. It's all very connected, you know, such and such knows such and such. And, you know, the community actually isn't that big. And as you point out there, it's quite possibly that, you know, we're in that universe. So that's why we know of these people, <laughs> because you've now become one of them without even realizing. <laughs> I think, you know, I mean, I, I look at a lot of the, the statistics uh, and with ultra marathoning, for instance, the year I started uh, in 1993, there was something like, uh, 3,500 finishers in North America. And last year, there was something like 120,000 finishers in North America. Jeez. So if you look at the growth, it's been crazy, right? I mean, that's astronomical uh, if you look at a graph. But still, that's 120,000 finishers in North America. And there are you know 400 million people <laughs> in North America. So it's still just a, a minute fraction of a fraction that actually are doing the things we're doing. It's quite an innate sort of sport, though, isn't it? It's like, you know, there's almost a sense of feeling that we're doing something new and it's amazing, but it's almost like we're coming back full circle and doing something that we used to do years ago. And it's that innate sensation and freedom and feeling that we're feeling in this. It's maybe even more important now in this modern world of social media and all that good stuff. No, I agree. I think there's something primordial about uh, you know, stripping half naked and, and running wild through the mountains. I think it, you know, it's, it's primitive, right? And it's, uh, there, there's some part of us, uh, there's some part of our, our human beast that, you know, that wants to run wild through the mountains and chase and be chased, you know, with, with our muscles pulsating and adrenaline, you know, coursing through our system. There's just, there's something about that that uh that we're drawn to and it's not just men which is interesting it's women as well and, and I, I like that i think that um there's an energy there that is very it's very healthy i think it may it connects us to 
to what we are, to, you know, just the, the human animal. Yeah, there's been a huge, you talked about the women as well, there's been a huge shift in women ultra running. Uh, the likes of Courtney Dewalter, Jasmine Paris, and we had Maggie Goodrell on the show there as well, who won the Backyard Ultra. Um, also had Christina Madsen, who's on the podcast last weekend, who won the, the Seven Marathons, Seven Continents, in the Seven Days World Mar- Marathon Challenge. Um, she beat the men outright as well. There seems to be this huge shift with the women at the minute. What do you think is the reason for the, behind the back of that? You know, I, I've heard so many concepts and so many ideas. Um, you know, I've heard that uh, because, you know, women have higher levels of estrogen, they're more immune to pain. Uh, I've heard that, um, uh, you know, women uh, are better at utilizing body fat as fuel because women um, have a higher percentage of body fat than men. And I've also heard my wife's theory that, you know, we're just more patient. <laughs> and since, you know, we, we look, we view things in the long run where you, you men, you just sprint off, you know, like you're running a hundred meter dash and, and we're willing to pace. But I, I think women are uh, innately uh, physiologically uh, equal with men, if not superior to men. And I don't find it surprising that women are winning a lot of these races. I almost find it surprising that they're now discovering that they can win these sort of races because you know i i got my ass kicked by women uh, early on in ultra marathoning and you know i i thought man i know that they're not training harder than me because i'm training harder than anyone i think they're just more talented yeah p- patience is a key thing as well like that's one thing that i am struggling with in ultra running so if you know when i start losing my strength for a better way of putting it, um, and I'm maybe able to put out about 60%. You know, I start, I know I have to be patient that if I, if I just maintain putting one foot in front of the other, you know, that this low period will pass. Um, but in a modern day world where we have to be places and we have to do things, you know, I do so, I work in a corporate world where I've got plenty of meetings and um, your mind is conditioned <laughs> to be into the next place. Um, I find that patience is one key attribute to ultra running that can make you successful if you can sort of stay and be present in what's actually happening and just deal with that. You know, I couldn't agree more. I mean, a lot of people ask me, you know, how do you get through these these low points? And, you know, what do you think about? And my reaction is don't think, (laughs) you know, as soon as you start thinking, you get yourself in trouble because you think of just that. Wow. You know, my uh the time I was shooting for has gone out the window and, uh, you know, I got a meeting next week or, or this and that. Uh, I say just just focus on taking your next step to the best of your ability. Really get that granular. Just say I'm going to take my next step as, as best as I can and my next step. So be in the present moment, as you said, be in the here and now. Don't think about how far the finish line is. Don't even think about how far the next aid station is. Just think about taking your next step to the best of your ability. And put yourself in that present moment, that present time frame. It's almost zen-like. And I know I've gotten through a lot of really low points where I thought I'll never get through this by not thinking I'll never get through this, just thinking about taking my next step as best as I can. I, I do find it hard to do, though, even though I'm just telling myself bullshit and think, no, you're not going to get <laughs> through this. Like, I know it's crap. And I know that if I just persevere, it's almost like I want to hold on to the pain a little bit and feel a bit sorry for myself at times. Um, and I, you know, it's only when I can really, as you say, just stop thinking, you know, can I start to progress forward? But I still struggle with that. Is that something that you still, 
still would struggle with do you still have to go through that process like is your mind still trying to grind you down yeah well you know it's from experience you you know that you you know you know how things how bad things can be and you know how you can come out the other end uh feeling better so i think that you know continually experimenting and pushing yourself and, and failing i mean pushing yourself to a race where you actually fail um, you know, you know where that edge is and you can butt, you know, right up against it without going over it. But I think that the more you race, um, the more experience you have as an ultra marathoner, uh, the more you learn about, um, how, you know, how you can get through points where you just thought I will never get through this. And somehow you emerge and, and get to the finish line. Yeah. For those people that don't know. So it was your 30th. It's quite a infamous story, which I'm sure you've told a million times by now. So I apologize for going back to it. <laughs> Um, but there is a new generation of runners coming up so i think it is important to touch on it like um so your 30th birthday you're out having a few beers with your mates and working in a high corporate job company car all that good stuff living the perceived dream that you've been conditioned to thinking is the way of success i suppose throughout your life and you decide like at whatever moment in time within that bar, I don't know, was it your 20th shot or whatever it was <laughs> that it created it? Um, but just uh, actually, this doesn't feel right. And you just went for a run. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's, <laughs> that's the story of, uh, of my book is, you know, walking, walking out of a nightclub at, you know, at midnight uh, after, you know, drinking with my buddies and deciding uh, I was going to run 30 miles to celebrate my 30th birthday instead of having more shots of tequila <laughs> and just ran off into the night and that, that night changed my life. I mean, you know, I woke, I, I, I should say not, I woke up, but I, I sobered up about, you know, 10 miles into it and thought, you know, what am I doing? This is crazy, but something just felt right. And I just kept going and, uh, I, I made you know, I ran all night, uh, drunk <laughs> in my underwear even. And, you know, the next morning I said, I'm going to resign from my job and become a runner. Like, that's pretty mad. Like, even like, especially back then, as you said earlier on, you sort of touched on it. Like people, you know, people were sort of moving towards a career for life. Nobody would think if this didn't feel right. Because everybody has those little voices inside, that intuition that's trying to guide you and navigate through making the right decisions or the, or the wrong decisions. But very rarely people sort of follow that passion what what do you think made you change that direction made that decision at that point in time you know i think i saw somehow i saw the writing on the wall that you know i'm going to wake up at 50 years old and be you know very disappointed uh with my life maybe be financially uh you know secure but always look back and thought you know had i could i could i could i've made it as a runner could i have actually followed the path I wanted to follow. And I just thought, you know, it's better to try it and fail than 20 years later to look back and say, God, I wish I would have tried. And, and you know, just with that mindset, I decided to, to dive in. Yeah, because there is a saying, isn't there? You can fail at what you don't want to do, so you might as well fail at doing what you like to do. <laughs> but 19, that was your 30th birthday, so I did a calculation there. That was 1992. I written down here your birthday run. <laughs> <laughs> But like you, you sort of leaped into the long distance pretty early on. Like, so you'd done the Great Western State. Was that your first one hundred mile race? That was my first hundred miler. Yep. You completed it 
11 times and under 24 well, hours 12 times but who's counting <laughs> <laughs> but do you get something yeah there's something unique about that race so you you get the silver buckle for breaking the 24 hours um do you get something special for doing that more than 10 times you get a special buckle yep so that must have been pretty cool like so what was the history of that race because that really one that one is like steeped in history like isn't it well, that was really the first 100-mile trail race, you know, organized 100-mile trail, trail race. Um, that kind of started the, the ultramarathoning trail scene. Ultramarathoning had, you know, has existed for many years, but it was never really in, on wilderness trails. So, you know, as the, the legend has it, in 1974, uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Gordy Ansley, he was training for a 100-mile uh, horse race. It was called the Tevis Cup originally. So the, the race was on horses. It wasn't a running race. And his horse, you know, came up lame a couple of days before the race, but he was a very fit guy. So he said, he's, I'm still going to do the race. And they said, well, Gordy, how, you know, you don't have a horse. How are you going to do the race? He said, well, I'm just going to run. So this crazy guy, uh, you know, ran the Tevis Cup, the 100-mile foot race through the mountains of the Sierra Nevada outside of Lake Tahoe. And he actually finished he actually beat some of the horses <laughs> and and when he got to the finish line uh you know they said this this guy made it what you know what do we give him and you know the prize for uh finishing the race the horse race was uh, you know it's a rodeo buckle a belt you know a, a cowboy yeah. buckle and they said well we've got a buckle let's just give him that and that's why now you know the belt buckle has become uh kind of the the prize that you get for running a lot of ultra marathons, but that was the genesis of how uh, it got to that point. Yeah, that is awesome. Like it's 1800 feet of ascent, but the unique thing about this race is it's got like 23,000 feet of descent. So it it starts quite high in the mountains. The downhills will crush you. And it also, (laughs) you know, it's, uh, it's, it gets very hot. People, uh, they don't realize, you know, it's, it's the race is in the side. It's in, the last week of June. So it gets very hot, even though you're in the mountains, uh, as you get further and further down the mountains, um, in the, what they call the canyons, it's usually over, you know, hundred degrees or, you know, routinely 42 or 43 degrees centigrade. Yeah. So it does have quite a lot, of, a large dropout. Um, it's not so much now. I think people are understanding how to sort of survive a race like this. Um, but back then, you know, I think in 1995, there was around a 50% dropout in the people that were entering these type of races, tr- especially trying to break the 24 hours, which was the key goal for people. But it's drawn loads of people in, hasn't it? It's drawn all of the big names. Jim Wamsley last year ran it in a phenomenal time of 14 hours and nine minutes. What's your thoughts about that? You know, I call it a 100-mile dash. You know, he, <laughs> the way that guy runs is, you know, the, the whole ultramarathoning landscape is, is so changed. I mean, back, you know, when I got into it, you know, it was just, I was kind of a, you know, a, a really fit guy, you know, but I mean, I was a, I was windsurfing, I was rock climbing, I was mountain biking, I was just an outdoorsman, uh, you know, that thought, okay, let's run 100 miles on the trails. I love the trails. You know, nowadays, it's, you know, these collegiate runners that have, you know, very celebrated uh, careers as you know, as running high school track and and then college track, so they they really know how to run. And you know, originally people said, well, th- these folks are never going to be able to scale to to run up, you know, to those sort of ultra marathon distances. 
well, <laughs> bullshit. You know, the, these guys like Wamsley and, and many others uh, are just blazing trails. And, you know, th- things have changed. I mean, it's, it's, it's become more, much more of a race uh, on the top end. But then, you know, I'll say in the middle of the pack, uh, it's, it's not that at all. It's still about the individual trying to accomplish something extraordinary on their own. And, you know, the one, the one dynamic with Western states that a lot of people don't realize is that because it goes through, um, in America, we have these uh, national parks. Because it goes through a national park area, uh, the the number of um, entrants is always capped. So you they're only allowed 369 people to enter the race. You cannot accept more people. So uh, if you look at a race like UTMB, which I see you've got your UTMB you know jersey on, yeah. there's thousands of runners, right? I mean, you saw that. There's there's yeah. that, it's not almost tens of thousands now when you look at all the different race distances. Uh, Western states, there can only be 369 people, and the odds of getting in on the lottery, it's it's you know it's it's less it's less likely you'll get into Western states and get into Harvard. <laughs> it's crazy, you know. There's something like uh, 14,000 applications for you know 369 slots. So if you do get into Western states, you're damn well going to finish, right? Because you might not get in again. And that's why I think, you know, to your point, it used to be maybe, you know, three quarters or half of the field finished. Now that number is, is higher because people have, you know, they've, they've worked so hard just to get into the race. They're, you know, they're not going to DNF unless they end up in the hospital. <laughs> yeah, it, it becomes the main race for the year, doesn't it then? Yeah, just getting in. I mean, you know, people say, wow, you've got the, you know, the 10 time finisher buckle. Uh, isn't that great? And you know, before I thought, well, you know, whatever. I ran the race ten times. I've run a lot of races ten times. You know, I've done Badwater ten times. But you know, I've done countless marathons ten times, and a lot of other ultras ten times. But the thing with the Western states and having that ten-time uh, finisher buckle is, it's almost impossible to do nowadays. Not because you're not physically capable or talented enough, just because you can't get into the race ten times. Yeah, I, I, yeah, actually, lottery, yeah. I actually know a guy that's put into the lottery 10 years in a row and not got in. <laughs> um, but I also yeah. know a guy that put in twice and got in twice. So that's why they call it a lottery. <laughs> um, so you had a real love affair with that race, obviously, 12 times. An amazing race in an amazing place. But you also had a love affair, and I sort of sniggered a little bit, with Badwater. Not such an amazing place. Um <laughs> But like Death Valley, it's named that for a reason. And um, so you're fir- again, 1995 was your first time jumping into that. Like these are huge races so early on um, since you ran out that bar, do- bar door. Um, what drew you to that race? Well, you know, after I finished Western States, uh, I thought, wow, I just ran 100 miles. And, you know, is it is it going to be possible? Can you run further than 100 miles? And I learned of this race called Badwater, which I thought, okay, that's 135 miles. Let's see if you can do that. Um, what I didn't realize is <laughs> it's across Death Valley in the middle of summer. So, you know, the elements are, it's hard to understate how savage it is out in Death Valley. But I just thought, let's see if we can do this. And, you know, that that race not only combines, you know, in, in an insane distance, but the conditions that are ungodly 
to you know to say it <laughs> ungodly to say the least yeah. well, the name the names death valley devil's cornfield devil's Co- golf course you know the the stovepipe wells um furnace creek so ungodly i don't think you could have used a better word <laughs> um you're bound to know those names intimately by now how many times did you do bad war I've done it. I've finished. I've done it eleven times, but um, I finished ten. Okay. Yeah, the first year I tried it, it, it almost killed me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. I literally, uh, I, I, uh, I was so, so out of it. I um, passed out on the side of the road, and my crew found me. They saw my shoes, my sneakers sticking out from a bush, and they found me and and drove me to safety. A baptism of fire, so to speak. <laughs> literally yeah yeah so what, ha- what well, you know that yeah the thing with the bad water i mean it's it's not just so it's 135 miles but there's also a ton of climbing like people don't realize how many how much climbing there is in bad water and the other thing that is really uh most daunting to me is the headwind there can be a headwind that is is so savage it feels like someone has a blow dryer in your face so yeah. you're running against a head a headwind. It's 125 degrees. Uh, it, it's really a beautiful race. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't get much better than that. Yeah. Yeah, for, but it's fourteen and a half thousand feet, um, and it can go on. Like, how long would it take you to finish? You you did win it in 2004, was it? I think I don't even say I won. I I, I say I survived the fastest. <laughs> <laughs> um, what sort of time does it take you? Because you go you. You'll go a couple of nights at bad water, wouldn't you? Well, it, me, it's typically one night. So I think, you know, my times have varied from around, I think, around 27 hours. And I think the the slowest was around 34 hours. But for a lot of people, it's it's two nights. You're right. Yeah, and how do you how do you manage through those those temperatures then? How do you stop yourself from cramping up, from dehydrating? All of those things that your body's not used to dealing with. Yeah, I mean, it. it <laughs> you know, one thing I do is I carry a um, an extra uh, extra bottle, and I'm you know basically hosing myself off as much as I can. So trying to stay cool and wet, but it's it's incredible. You you can dump a, a you know a, a cooler of ice water over your head at bad water, and five minutes later you're bone dry, literally. It's how quickly things evaporate out there. It's it's unbelievable. So you know the the one thing I do is I wear protective gear. I found that you know when the temperatures are above 110 degrees, it, I don't care how much sunblock you have on your skin, it, it doesn't work <laughs> when it's that hot. So I put on uh, you know UV protective arm sleeves. Um, you know I put on a hat that's got a collar on it, and I really try to keep the sun off my body. The other thing I do is I just run on the white line. So I just, I can find my whole universe to five feet in front of me and a white line. And I just put my head down and just stay on that white line. Yeah, you, you, you seem to have a very, it comes back to that Zen thing again, doesn't it really? And it's being able to keep your head, just focus on moving one foot in front of the other and being patient with the race. Well, and it also comes down to discipline because, um, you know, if you've ever tried to meditate, uh, for me, meditating, sitting still is really hard because my mind wants, I can meditate just great when I'm running, but when I'm sitting still, my mind is wandering all over the place. And to have the mental discipline to pull your mind back 
to that one place where you're not thinking about anything is really, it's, it's almost a task. And I mean, as you said, you get impatient when you're running these, these ultra marathons sometimes. Uh, it really takes discipline not to be impatient, mm-hmm. you know, to turn that part of your mind off. So uh, it, it's, it's really, a, a, you know, a disciplined approach, I think. I talk to a lot of runners, and they say the same thing. Like, it's almost, you got to force yourself not to be impatient. Yeah, easier said than done, I think, <laughs> especially in these type <laughs> yeah. of races. So 2002 then, you went through a different type of um, challenge, I suppose, and it was the very first South Pole Marathon. So you've gone from extreme heat to extreme cold. Was that just the attraction to that, something different? Well, I should add that was the first and the last South Pole Marathon, <laughs> the first and only. Uh yeah, I mean that you know I was I was originally told to be you know 40 to 50 intrepid runners from around the globe you know all convening on the South Pole for this this inaugural South Pole marathon and it ended up there's three of us that that did the race. I mean it's it's really dangerous at the South Pole. Just getting there is almost impossible. You know they have they have uh, marathons and ultras on Antarctica but they're not on the interior. I mean getting into the South Pole is treacherous in its own right. And, you know, we got stuck at the South Pole for almost a week. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. You know, I told my wife I'll be home. You know, the, the agenda said it was 11 day trip, you know, and 30 days later, I stumbled back into the house. So the uh, the challenges of, of pulling that race off were immense. And I don't think any of us realized what we were getting ourselves into until we got there. And then it was one of those dangerous spirals where, you know, we were kind of stuck at the South Pole or you know, 26.2 miles away from the South Pole trying to run this marathon, but the weather was not cooperating. And, you know, you can't fight the weather in Antarctica. When it, when it's a whiteout, you don't, you can't run or you can't see anything. And we were get, all of us were getting impatient and stir crazy. And then there was, there was talk of this is, this is, you know, this is too dangerous. The first opportunity we get to fly out of here, let's start up the engines and, and get out. And, you know, and then you're in this really bad place where you're thinking, I've just invested, you know, 25 days of my life and worked so hard. And now we're not going to do the race. So we're making some very imprudent decisions. And, you know, that's how people die. <laughs> you didn't even wear your snowshoes during that race either, even with the white out. Yeah. Well, I mean, it came down to that we only had two pairs of snowshoes with three runners. <laughs> and, you know, and I had, you know, I thankfully I had, I had worked with, um, the North Face that designed this special pair of shoes for me that were basically oh. one size too big, and they were Gore-Tex, so they were waterproof. And I had those, um, those, you know, basically those shake and bake heat pads, you know, the the air activated heat pads. So I just uh, put some of those inside my sock, and <laughs> thought I can do this. And I still, my toes, you know, were, were almost <laughs> my toes were blocks of ice at the finish. Yeah. It's- it's quite extreme though. Like how, how did you feel when you come back after that? Like, cause where do you go after doing, like you've done the, the oldest hundred mile race, you've done the baddest in bad water and now the most extreme, I suppose, in South Pole. So like, where was your mind at that point? Were you always just searching for your next limit or seeing where, what could break you or? You know, I was, no, I was kind of more searching for what would be just the most outrageous and, uh, you know, in fun sort of adventure. And that's, you know, that's what led me to run 50 marathons in 50 states in 50 days. I just thought, 
what a great road trip. I mean, it combines my love of, of travel with running. And I just thought it would be, you know, tons of fun to do it. I, I wasn't saying, you know, can I pull this off? You know, can one man run 50 marathons in a row? I just thought this would be a hell of an adventure. Let's do this. What was uh, your wife, Julie, thinking about that? I think, you know, she was she was a practicing dentist, but um, she helped a lot with logistics. And, you know, my, my mom is a retired school teacher, so she homeschooled the kids. I mean, we had this this big, uh, this motor home and we, you know, just gallivanted around the country. So it was, it was kind of a grand adventure. And I mean, my kids, you know, my daughter was um, 11 years old and my son uh, was nine years old. How many kids that age get to see all 50 U.S. states? It was, it was really amazing for them. Yeah, it's, it's one of those sort of adventures. And that's why I like these big challenges. There's something special about a challenge that you create yourself. And when you sort of look back over your shoulder in time, it's those things that sort of stick out the most. I think so. I mean, I think th- that experience to me will will always be, you know, one of the top experiences. You know, it, sure, you know, winning Badwater is special, but it's, you know, it's an organized race. It's a different sort of feeling um, when you're racing. You know, it, 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 let's be honest, when, you know, when there's a clock involved and someone says on your market set, go, it, it's a race where, you know, running 50 marathons in 50 states in 50 days is, is a run. It's more about running, not about racing. And it's a very different experience, to your point, those two things. Yeah, just one big adventure, I suppose. Like, um, Where did you, you finish that in New York? Was that right? Finished in New York. That was the final one, yep. New York Marathon. You, and ironically, it was the fastest of all of the 50. So I ran, I ran the race in... Um, in three hours flat so three hours and 30 seconds like that is just crazy like and that, i think that is the i don't the cherry on the on the cake wasn't the isn't the right way to put that but i think that's what makes it so amazing and i've read that in uh, quite a few stories especially in your book you know how you get stronger through these races there's almost that like settling in period and then that real struggle and then it sort of your body adapts yeah, no, I think the human body is remarkable. And I think that, you know, if you treat it right, you know, through diet and training and, and cross, I also said cross training is very important. So strength building, I think, you know, we, we can do some extraordinary things. And I, I just, I think that um, the limitations that we place on ourselves are, are mainly self-constructed. <laughs> you know, we're, it's our perceived limitations that hold us back. It's not our actual limitations. Do you think you've you found that place where you've gone beyond what you perceive? Like if you like you ran a three hour marathon on your fiftieth marathon after doing fifty in a row, and the logistics and the tiredness of all of that, like was that a surprise to you that day? Yeah, I mean, I did, I had no idea. You know, going into it, I you know I thought either I'm going to end up um, on crutches, <laughs> or or <laughs> or I'll get stronger. Let's see how it goes. So. You know, there are there are plenty of marathons that I thought I'm not going to finish this marathon, let alone you know 25 more. Um, but I just tried to be patient. To your point about patience, and not think about how many more marathons I had to go, but just think about you know getting to the tree up the road and getting to the next stop sign. You know, getting to the bend in the trail, uh, and just taking it one day, one step at a time, and being patient. And it you know it paid it paid off in the end. I actually met you in New York, believe it or not. Um, I think it was 2015. You were running the marathon. And 
I was staying in the same hotel as you. So I had just come down that morning, went out to stretch my legs as you do. Um, no phone, no distractions. And as I came back to the lobby of the hotel, you know, the revolving door. <laughs> Me and you actually yeah. entered the revolving door at the same time. <laughs> and I had no phone. And this voice inside my head went, holy shit, it's Dean Carnazes. And you just sort of in slow motion drifted by me. And I was stuck inside the lobby then looking out, think, shocked, stunned, and thinking to myself, what do I do next? And Dean just, boom, away he went for his warm-up. Oh. And um, but I went over to the left end and met one of my club runners. I went, you are not going to believe who I just met. And they were like, who, who was it? Was it Obama? Because he was about, <laughs> I went, no, it was Dean Carnazes. And they were like, who? And I was like, what? This is the ultramarathon man yourself. Like, what? how could, how could you not know who Dean Carnazes is? Um, do you get that quite a lot? If you shadowed me around, you'd be amazed my life, how weird it is. Yeah, I mean, I get people pulling over on the side of the road when I'm running. Like, oh, my God, you're Dean. You know, can I have a selfie with you? Uh, you know, as I'm running. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'll never forget one time I was, I was walking through the airport. And two guys are walking, you know, coming toward me. And one guy looks and his eyes light up. And he said, you know, he's looking at me like, holy shit. Oh, my God, I can't believe it. What, uh, you know? And he's just going on and on. And, uh, and he said, I can't. I, and he turns to his buddy and he says, do you know who this is? And his buddy goes, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, a friend of mine, a few people have showed me your books. And he says, oh, yeah, I know Dean Carnes. I actually met him in New York. <laughs> <laughs> and it literally was in the revolving door and that was it um 2015 the 350 miles was exceptional because we have sort of events now like the, do you, are you aware of the backyard ultra which is the last one standing oh yeah of course um it's it's really sort of taken off as a like a sport in itself um so i've had laz on the podcast and a few of the people like courtney and maggie Guderall, and um, we had the quarantine backyard which just finished, I think, this morning. Yep. Um, with a bit of controversy around that as well, like, but I think it was sixty-three three loops was done. So it's very similar to that sort of. I know it's totally different, like, but it's three hundred and fifty miles in eighty hours with no sleep. Like you started on Wednesday at two p.m. and finished at ten forty-four p.m. on Saturday night <laughs> with no sleep whatsoever, like. Like, what was that experience not like? You know, it was it was psychotic. <laughs> when I, I mean, when I think back on it, it was really it was really a uh, probably not a very safe thing to do um, because it wasn't it wasn't a you know it wasn't a backyard ultra like I wasn't running in a mm. confined area where someone could actually you know keep an eye on me sort of thing. There were times when I was you know even though I was following a, a, a course that was part of a relay race. You know, there are times where in the middle of the night, I'm just out there running by myself and, you know, I'm falling asleep as I'm running and cars are driving by. And I'll never forget um, on the kind of that third day uh, running along and looking down at my feet and seeing it looked to me, it looked like a praying mantis, like a little bug kind of moving along in front of me. And I'm looking at this bug on the ground and these kind of swinging limbs of this this bug. And I kind of, you know, clear my eyes and look closer. And I thought, that's me. <laughs> I, I was like looking down at myself from the vantage point of maybe being in a helicopter or a blimp or something. It was, it was 
literally, an, you know, I've never had an out of body experience, but I think that was an out of body experience. I mean, I, I don't know how else to say it. I felt so light and I'm looking at this thing down there going, that, that's me running. So I, I don't know if it's very safe. <laughs> <laughs> um, you got to around 300 miles and you had to sort of pull off the road. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was going, I was swerving all over the road, and it, you know, it, it was, it was to the point where I was gonna, I was gonna get run over. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, everything about that was crazy, and I, I remember getting to the finish, and uh, I was just in my running shorts. I had, you know, my body was so hot from running. You know, my metabolism was so revved up, and I'm standing there. And there, you know, there are people around and people taking pictures, and there are a couple of reporters. And I noticed they're all in big puffy jackets, you know, like big North Face ski jackets. And and then it hit me like, wow, it's really cold out here. And the next thing I knew, I was in hypothermia. I mean, I was just shivering. And yeah, and they put me on the ground and put me in a, you know, a mummy bag, you know, a, a down sleeping bag. And I remember just everything was sealed off except for my mouth. And I just remember saying, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Feed me. And someone was like shoveling something in my mouth and i thought maybe it was i thought it was peanut butter like or almond butter they're putting almond butter and i just chewed it and chewed it and then i woke up the next morning literally i just passed out and woke up the next morning wow. and i had this sort of off taste in my mouth and it was what they've been shoveling in my mouth was hummus <laughs> oh, i ate like a whole container of hummus do you think that was the most ex extreme event or condition that you'd got yourself into yeah, that was when I, I pushed the farthest. I would say I was the most strung out. Yeah. Mm. Um, is that the event where you sort of fell asleep when you were running? That that's happened to me a couple a couple times. That was that was one of the events. Yeah. Do you hold the record yeah. for sleep running? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I was talking to a, a, another ultra runner yesterday, and I said, "Have you ever fallen asleep while you've been running?" And he's like, "Of course. Who hasn't?" And I said, I, I don't think that many. Have you ever fallen asleep while you've been running? I've taken a power nap when I'm running. So uh, on the run, or just kind of laid down on the side of the trail. No, whilst running. And what I did was, yeah. and I was at like a half a mile stretch on the road, a country lane. It was actually last November. But I had running poles, and what I did was, I stuck the running poles out either side of me, because it's a very narrow sort of road. And I sort of just closed my eyes and ran. <laughs> so if my pole had hit the right side, I knew to sort of direct myself left a little bit. <laughs> I was sort of bouncing off the ditches <laughs> with these poles. So I bet I did sleep running. Um, but by the time I got to the half end of the half mile, believe it or not, it did refresh me. Just being able to close my eyes, you know, for about five minutes as I ran down this lane. Not the same, I suppose, like, but a bit of a power nap. <laughs> it's not the same as full <laughs> sleep running, but it does it does help. Like I wouldn't advise it. So, anybody? well, I knew a guy a guy I used to train with, and he he actually won the what's called the Ram. I don't know if you know Ram, which is the race across America. Yeah. It's a bike race. Yeah. So it's a continuous race from you know to across the country, basically. Yeah, I've seen the and, video. Um, it's amazing. Like, yeah, this guy his his neck muscles from cycling uh, were so fatigued that he couldn't hold his head upright. So he had his he had his crew duct tape his head. Like pull back, <laughs> they duct tape his head so he's looking up, and he said, "He's like, I can't even. There are entire states where I can't even remember. I can't remember the state. Like, I think I was half asleep as I was riding. He couldn't even. He could, he's like, I don't even. 
call crossing Iowa kind of thing. But it's those sort of extreme things that really show you what the body can do, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's that, that's, a, that's sort of warfare of a, of a different sort. So you've done everything really to like 50 marathons in 50 states in 50 days. You've done 350 miles. That was, you touched on there, that was part of the relay, which you've done numerous times, wasn't it? The 199 mile relay, was that? That's that's how it all started. So after I ran the Badwater Ultra Marathon, which is 135 miles, I thought, you know, can I go further than that? And I couldn't find any organized races that were further than that. But I did find a, a relay race that was 199 miles. It was just a 12 person team. But I just signed up as one person <laughs> and they and they let me do it. It's just one person. So I, uh, I went and ran the, the relay. Uh, but, you know, it's funny. Nowadays, you know, the 200-mile races are way more commonplace, as you know. I mean, we just talked about the Backyard Ultra, which is a, a little bit different format, but there's a lot of races that are 200 miles now, so that's becoming uh, more mainstream. But back, you know, when I first did yeah. it, there was there really was no 200-milers. There is a there's a trio, isn't there, like the Tahoe 200, the Bigfoot, and there's one other one as well, um, sort of on the West Coast where you guys are at. Um, and it's getting more and more people every year as well. But it's a totally different experience, isn't it? Like it's a real grassroots type of adventure, I suppose. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's a different mindset. I mean, you know, the, the cutoff is 100 hours for some mm. of these. And, you know, people are, um, you use poles, as you said, and, you know, you, you basically, uh, you plan for sleep. I mean, you say, I'm going to sleep maybe two hours this night or three hours, you know, that night. And you, it's just kind of you're going as fast as you can, but you're, you're power hiking a lot of the time. So it's a, it's a sort of a different challenge. I mean, still insane challenge, but it's different than, say, racing, you know, the western states, you know, run, trying to run 100 miles as fast as you can versus, you know, trying to finish a 200-miler. So the 50, 50, and 50, what did you think was more difficult doing that or running across America, the 3,000 kilometers that you did? How long did that take? It was 75 days? Yeah, the, 75 days. I ran from Los Angeles to New York City. <laughs> um, you know, that you was, like New York, that, don't you? <laughs> I, like, I like finishing in New York. That, that, was, uh, that had challenges of its own right. I mean, that, you know, I was running 40 to 50 miles a day on that one, but I potentially could have run further, but it was, it was for a television show. So the format was that I, I basically had to run these prescribed distances every day because of programming. So it was a, a, sh a morning show called Live with Regis and Kelly, where they had me on their show every day. And, the, and their studio was located in New York City. So that's where I finished, at their studio in New York City. And, you know, the, the challenge with that is, you know, doing TV interviews as you're running. <laughs> yeah. You know, and just and being on, even though you're, you know, I don't want to discount running 40 to 50 miles a day because it's, it's hard work, but, um, you know, you're just not at your best when, you know, you've run that sort of distance, especially when it's, it's hot outside and then you got to sit there for an hour and do a TV interview. Yeah. Did that bring a, a different level of pressure along with that? Did it take away some of the freedom of running? Very much so. And, and they got kind of mad at me because a couple of times I, um, <laughs> I, you know, I woke up at two in the morning and I thought, you know what? <laughs> no one's watching. I'm just going to, I'm going to run. So I'd go on these run. You know, I'd start like uh, earlier and just start running just because I wanted to just 
find that magic in running, you know, that running across America is such a kind of a, uh, a romantic uh, concept. And here I was surrounded by TV cameras the whole time. I just wanted to escape it for a while. It's one, it's, the, it's one of the reasons why people do do it, isn't it? It's almost like a pilgrimage for people um, doing that. It's just so liberating and disconnected, and I suppose. Yeah, I mean, that's what I love more than anything is just, you know, putting on a hydration pack and throwing a, a credit card in my, in my pack and a phone and just running. Like, I love running up to the Napa Valley. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, so I just love running all night. It's about a 100-mile route that I follow. And and just having, you know, my family come up in the morning and meet me and we just spend the weekend up in Napa. But I, I really love just doing those, you know, unscripted, self-supported runs. Yeah, no, I, I live um, near a very, very small mountain range. We have some climbs around 850 meters. But I just go for like a 10 mile run, maybe on a Friday night at nine o'clock in the evening, just with a head torch. Like other people think I'm crazy. Um, <laughs> it's not a difficult run it's not a difficult ascent but there's just something about it you know you know nobody else is doing it and there's this sense of freedom and i like it even more when i get lost up there you know you're safe but just that unknown of where you're going it's just that sense of adventure i suppose well and you know we talked about uh how the, these things are more commonplace i mean they are more commonplace because i mean you and i are both doing it and there's other people doing it but I still think that, you know, if, if this was a mainstream, uh, you know, TV or radio interview, a lot of people would just have their mouth agap thinking, these yeah. guys go running in the middle of the night with headlamps on? That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I still think it's a very small percentage of people that are doing what we're doing. It wasn't what you would want it to have been running across America, but it, obviously it's still an amazing thing, an amazing achievement to do. Is that the one where you went to the White House? Yeah, that, I mean that was <laughs> that was a crazy story. Yes, yeah, I got. I mean, I get a call from Michelle Obama's uh, press secretary as I'm running, you know, through Washington D.C. Like, <laughs> hey, Michelle really wants to meet you. I'm like, who is this? <laughs> Who's Michelle? She's like, do you know Michelle Obama? She's like the first lady. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I just I ran. Yeah, it was just, it was surreal. I'm I'm running in front of the White House, and all of a sudden. You know, the gate opens and there's a guy standing there with a, you know, with a semi-automatic rifle, like a, you know, a Navy SEAL that guards the place. And he's like, hey, Carno, come on in. She's waiting for you out in the South Lawn. <laughs> and I just run right into the White House and I literally run down the hallway at the White House. So I'm in my running, just running. People are high-fiving me like, hey, it's great to see you. And then I get to a person and he's just like, hey, hang a left. She's out there. And I just hang a left and run out to the South Lawn of the White House. And there's Michelle Obama. And she sees me and she says, oh, my God, it's such an honor to meet you. And I'm like, I'm like knocking on the side. I'm like, did she just say that? Really? It was it was crazy. And she, and she gives me a big hug. Yeah. What, what were you thinking of when you were running down the hallway? Did, did you think back and think, like, how did it ever come to this? I, I was so swept up in the moment. I mean, yeah. You know, I, I, so many thoughts were going through my mind. One is like, God, this is a really nice carpet. Like, it was really cushy, the carpet. Like, this is probably a really expensive carpet I'm running on. And, <laughs> you know, and then there's a, like a bust of George Washington, you know, in an alcove lit up. And I'm like, wow, there's George Washington. And then, you know, I, and then I could see the presidential li library and it kind of smelled like a library. I'm like, oh my God, there's a presidential library. So it's just you, didn't all these see your, you didn't see your books sitting there, no? <laughs> I didn't see Ultramarathon Man sitting there, yeah. Um, but it's quite amazing, though, the way you 
have sort of ventured through all these big races and like endurance events like you didn't really like you haven't really picked up and i want to touch wood when i say this like but any serious sort of running in injuries throughout your career have you no I've, i mean i've i've lost a couple toenails as most runners have <laughs> but um yeah no no uh no overuse injuries at all what do you put that down to do you think because you 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 look strong you look lean like what would your body fat percentage be it, it's low it's it's just below five percent yeah so like my strength to to weight ratio is really high um, because i do a lot of cross training so i do a lot of primarily with body weight but i do a lot of um conditioning overall uh, i don't just run i think just running is kind of a recipe for overuse injuries you know also i've got i've got good biomechanics like i i uh, you know my alignment is really good for a runner i don't pronate or supinate I kind of I've always been a midfoot striker and always kind of had that forward lean as you know it's kind of in vogue now but I've always just naturally run like that and you know having good alignment um, is you know it's hereditary it's not it's not something I train for um, you know there, there's that saying that uh, the best thing you can do as a long distance runner is to choose your parents well so I think <laughs> I did a good job with that the Cross training is a key thing as well, and it's one thing that I've, when I've looked back and, you know, cramped in races and things like that, and, you know, people talk about taking in salts and this and that. Um, in hindsight now, I know it was the lack of strength that I had because I just trained by running. And the more you cross train, the more you build your calves up and your quads up, the stronger you become and the more you can hold your form. And it does really keep you away from sort of injury. Um my friend's going to be laughing me saying that now. I'm the most injured runner <laughs> they know. But <laughs> So with everybody in the lockdown, like if you were to give people three sort of workouts that they could do, what, what sort of advice would you give on that that they could do from their home? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, my routine consists of, um, of push-ups uh, and sit-ups. I, I mean, if you said, you're saying three, I think that um, – to me, sit-ups are critical or some sort of um, workout for your for your core. I, I prefer sit-ups over planks. I think sit-ups are more effective than planks. So I would say three would be, you know, sit-ups. I think that burpees, <laughs> I know people are going to hate hearing that, but burpees <laughs> are one you got to do. I mean, it's just, it's a great, you know, overall body workout. And then um, I also do what's called ledge pull-ups. So if you can find a, like a, you know, any sort of uh, ledge in your house uh, that you can get your fingers around and do pull-ups. Uh, those are really helpful. You know, the other thing you could do for your legs or just something like just, uh, you know, standing leg up. So just find a chair and just literally step up to the chair with the same leg. Try that, you know, 35 times and I guarantee you'll be feeling it. And, uh, and I use a weight vest as well. So try, <laughs> try strapping 35 pounds on your body. So, like you done that in 2011, that race across America. Then um, 2016, then you took a different direction altogether, and you sort of followed some. Is it fair to say some grassroots, um, from the road to Sparta, which was sort of really what your last book was about. Yeah, that to me, the last book was really um, a different sort of approach to my writing because uh, it was you know, historical, uh, is largely based on history. So I worked with a gentleman by the name of, uh, Paul Cartledge 
who's a professor at Cambridge University. He's one of the foremost authorities on ancient Greek culture. And I learned all about the original marathon, which was actually an ultra marathon. And that was in 490 BC. So I, I studied um, ancient Greek um, literature and I pulled as many references as I could to uh, Pheidippides or Pheidippides, the original Greek marathoner, and learning about um, what he did and who this guy was, who he was and what he was all about. Yeah, and so the idea was then just to replicate what he did. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to me, it's really a tragedy that uh, marathoning has become so, um, I could say popular, you know, and prominent. But I think if you ask most people, you know, about the history of the marathon, mm. they, they really wouldn't be able to answer the question too well. I mean, they might say, well, there's this Greek guy who kind of ran and I think he died at the end. And that's kind of the, the gist of the story they'll remember. But in a lot of ways, what the original marathon did was preserve democracy. I mean, it came down to the Battle of Marathon where uh, the Persians were going to crush the Greeks. And the Greeks, it was kind of the first culture that developed this, this, you know, this rule by the people, this democracy. Um, you know, the polis was the people that, uh, that governed versus, you know, the, the few that, that kind of dictated how the people uh, were to live their lives. So had the Greeks lost the Battle of Marathon, um, democracy would have evolved in a very different way than we have today. And certainly um, what the Phidipides did was uh, historic in that regard because uh, people don't realize he didn't just run you know, 26.2 miles. He ran from Athens to Sparta, first of all, which is 153 miles. <laughs> so he ran an ultra marathon uh, to recruit the Spartans to help the Athenians battle the, the Persians at the Bay of Marathon. And then he ran back from Sparta to Marathon and then uh, ran that final marathon where he, you know, proclaimed at the at the Acropolis, uh, Nike, Nike or Nike, Nike, which means victory, victory. You know, we are victorious. And then he died. So that was the, the story of VDPDs. Yeah, that's crazy. Like, isn't it? And when you think back, you know, he wasn't wearing like night running shoes or or something like that or he wasn't using gels you know he was out in the heat like it was proper endurance oh, it probably running barefoot as well uh, uh also you know self-navigating uh so you know not i mean you, there was no you know obviously trail markers along the way and you're right you know um he was probably foraging food so grabbing figs and olives uh where he could he probably carried some uh, dried meat, which is like beef jerky, uh, and he might have had a like a bladder of some sort um, that could, you know, he could store water in. But most likely, he was just finding water along the way where he could. But it was incredible because, you know, the ancient record says that he arrived the day after setting off, which means, you know, basically sub thirty six hours. So this guy ran, you know. 153 miles in under 36 hours, you know, on his own, self-supported, um, and you know, <laughs> barefoot. That is crazy. Like, and how did you find that experience? Like, when you were running that, did you like? Did you get that real innate sensation following in his footsteps? There were moments. So I ran <clears throat> the race called the Spartathlon, which is kind of a, a recreation of what he did. 
and I used the same foods that he used. So I only ate uh, figs and olives and uh, dried meat and only drank water. I didn't use any sort of electrolyte replenishment. So that kind of put my body in that, you know, that same state that I'm sure he was in. You know, the difference is that I'm running in, you know, cushioned Hoka shoes. <laughs> you know, there's, uh, there's, it's mostly on the road, but crossing some of the mountain passes, there were elements and times where I thought, this is, this is pretty savage. Like, this is really amazing. You know, looking up at the moon and thinking, how did that, that guy know some of the mountains you cross, you're almost, you know, you're, you're, you're on all fours. I mean, you're just scurrying up the side of a mountain um, in the middle of the night and the wind's howling. And, you know, it, it must've been surreal to, to do what he did, but he must've been so determined to do it because, you know, he, knowing that if, if he failed that, you know, his people would probably be slaughtered. Yeah. I was just about to say that, like, you know, it's, it's very important for all of us, especially when it gets to those very dark places, like to really understand why we're actually doing it. And you hear people talking about their why and like, if your why is bigger than the reason to stop, then you'll continue. Um, and to your point there, I don't think his why could have been any bigger because people's lives were dependent on it. So it really summons up what the human spirit is all about. I think more than any, and you know, and that's the spirit of the marathon. That's the lore of the marathon. But I think few people realize that. So if you want to learn more people read the road to Sparta. Mm. <laughs> I'm, I'm shamefully going to say I haven't read your last book. So. <laughs> Uh, you know what? I, I'm going to shamefully say I think you should. I think you'd really enjoy it. Of, of all people, I think you'd really enjoy it. Yeah. It sounds like it. Just a couple of questions to finish off. So, What does the word fear mean to you? Fear means uh, not living up to your potential. Simple as that. <laughs> did, that did that surprise you? Yeah. That answer? But yeah, I think it surprised. I think the only thing you can fear is falling short of who you think you can be. Okay, cool. How important do you think it is to live a life with an element of struggle? I think that's the essence of a life well lived. It's 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 paramount. If you had the opportunity to go back and talk to your teenage self, what three life lessons would you give? Three. Uh, I would say uh, wear more sunscreen. <laughs> <laughs> I would say don't party so hard in college. A little less booze would probably do you well. And I would say uh, to hug your mother more often. Class. And just to finish, sort of thing, what would you like Dean Karnazes' legacy to be? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I doubt I'll have a legacy, but if, if I do, I think that um, – the legacy would just be, you know, this guy just, he loved life. He really did everything he wanted to do in life and, and really uh, just sucked the marrow out of life. He, he lived, he lived as big as he could and he did everything and he loved as much as strongly as he could love. And he got hurt as much as anyone gets hurt, but he just kept going and he really loved life. Also to share your experience and share your learning and, and, to inspire others that come behind you. I think that's a key part of your legacy. Um, I don't even want to end, Dean. I don't know, just sort of rambling on there. So with the lockdown, what are you doing with yourself? 
Are you stuck in the house? I, you know what? I feel very, very, very privileged because uh, we're still allowed to go outside uh, on our own, you know, safely. And uh, like you, I've got miles of empty trails right out my front door. So um, this, you know, the, the strangest thing to me, honestly, is that this has been the longest in, in two and a half decades that I haven't tra- I've never gone anywhere. Like usually I'm traveling overseas, you, you know, or somewhere most of the time. Like I spend more days traveling than at home. This is the longest stretch in two and a half decades where I've actually not traveled anywhere. And it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of bizarre in that regard. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of reflection going on at the minute. I think with people, you know, it's um, even though it's an adverse time that we're going through, you know, we're we're at home spending more time. Like we spent a a couple of hours around the kitchen table yesterday playing cards with the kids, <laughs> and it's so, sort of things yeah. you haven't been doing. And it's almost a time to take stock on what's going on and how busy and mad our lives can be, and maybe time just to slow it down a little bit and take some learning out of this once and hopefully this all sort of goes past i i agree i think that you know the 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 one you know cutting irony in all of this is that you know the air quality has never been better i mean <laughs> you know the, as far as the environment goes it's loving what's going on now um the you know the irony is we can't go outside to enjoy it but hopefully we will learn to find a better balance where you know i i know Personally, me, I don't have a car. I've like, that's been one thing I've given up on saying this is, you know, this is my contribution to trying to do my best as far as keeping this environment, you know, healthy. But I do travel a lot on planes and I'm realizing how destructive plane travel is for the environment. Yeah. Unfortunately, I work in um, an industry that builds builds aircraft seats. So (laughs) (laughs) I didn't want to say I I retract that. (laughs) Sorry. We need to get back in the air, people, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you any other big goals sort of set up in the near future? Well, you know, one one goal that I've been working on for about five years was to try to run a marathon in every country of the world in one year. Jeez. So I was going to set off on a global expedition um, to try to run 203 marathons in every country of the world. But, um, you know, with what's going on now, I don't know if that's ever ever going to be a possibility. Yeah, there's bound to be so a lot I, of compli- complications with that as well. Like even getting into countries and like it's all going to be very heightened. I'm assuming after this. I I think the world is going to change. Uh, the world is going to change after this. I don't even think it's going to change. Yeah. I know it's going to change. So I'm going to have to think up some new some new goals. Um, what about a backyard event? Have you ever felt attracted to something like that? Yeah, it's it's certainly appealing to me. I mean, you know. I, I think I want to start pursuing things off the race course, though, to your point. I think that's where I have a, a, a bigger impact and I enjoy it more. So maybe, you know, do running around the world or something like that. I mean, that, that to me, doing something kind of self-conceived uh, holds more appeal. But I certainly will continue racing. I just think that the future of racing is going to be different as well. I, I can't, you know, I can't picture having – you know, these big organized races the way we used to just because of uh, what we're experiencing now. I don't know if you've thought about that, but I mean, mm. I don't know what's going to happen in the future of, say, marathoning even. You know you know how the aid stations are set up. It's very, yeah. you just show up, there's food everywhere, there's, you know, people 
pouring water into glasses, handing it to you. Everyone's in very close proximity. Is I don't like know when that's all going to jelly come back. beans in a tub, like and yes. like, a thousand hands going into this one tub for jelly beans, like yeah. I just I don't I can't see that ever being the same in our lifetime. Yeah, it's a crazy time, all right. Um, but I'm sure that there are going to be many more adventures for us all. Like and like running isn't a sport; it's it's a way of life for a lot of us. Um, it'll be very difficult to to move away from that. I think. Dean, want to thank you personally anyway for inspiring me through your writing. Um, it really had opened my mind to what was possible. I've done quite a lot of adventures on my own, um, as well as in races. And it's it was those initial early books that sort of opened my mind towards that. I look forward to I'm going to be on Amazon now straight after this, <laughs> ordering the next book. And I really appreciate you giving up your time today. So thanks very much. Oh, thanks for having me on. And thanks for doing what you're doing. You're, uh, you're really helping a lot of people. So I, I know it's not easy to, to schedule these interviews, especially with people like me that are, you know, we're busy, but keep doing what you're doing. You're really helping people and um, we appreciate it. I uh, appreciate that, Dean. Thanks very much. Yeah, I'm gutted that you said UTMB because now I know that you can see I never even brushed my hair or shaved or anything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, shit, he can see me. <laughs> you look brilliant. You look brilliant. Appreciate it, Dean. Thanks. Okay, we'll be in touch. It's been great sitting down with Dean, a real pioneer in the world of ultra running. I have a lot of admiration for numerous ultra marathon runners, but none have influenced my own personal path as much as Dean. It's been a real pleasure. I hope you enjoyed. Until next week, stay safe and keep on moving.